Welcome to Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast that Mitch McConnell called. <laughs> so we have a retirement party to plan. I'm Moji L and while Liz is on vacation, I'm joined by my co-host, Alyssa Alduki. Hey, Moji. I'm so excited to dust off the party hats for that one. Let's get right <laughs> into it. Today, we're revealing the man behind the curtain of the IVF fuckery in Alabama. Spoiler alert. It's God. Ah. And mm -hmm, always is. And if you're banking on ballot initiatives to save abortion, we're here to piss on your fireworks and uncover the ways they're being undermined by the anti-abortion crotch cops. Those old villains. Well, our guests this week are Dr. Rebecca Gombertz, director of Aid Access, who has been on the forefront of getting abortion care to all people who need it for decades. And the very funny Suba Agarwal will talk about her new special, Airport Pigeon, and about her carving out joy in the circus of life. But first, let's talk about the good time we had hanging out with rock stars and an Oscar nominee moonlighting as a rock star. Oh my gosh, so much fun, wasn't it? Very casually, very fancy. Very much just our vibes. Fun fact, we didn't actually do it together. But Alyssa, why don't you tell them what we did? So our friends, Jason. Our friends. Oh, yeah, fully our friends. Our friends. I'm, yeah, I'm friends. fully using this as a credit for the rest of my life. Our friends, Jason Narducci and Oscar nominee Michael Shannon, um, were doing this amazing tour doing R.E.M.'s Murmur album all up and down the East Coast. I got to see the show in D.C. and Philly. I got to see it in New York. And they basically did this one album from like February 1st until the 14th all around the country. It was so much fun. And they got these incredible one-of-a-kind posters made. And 100% of the proceeds of all of those posters got donated to Abortion Access Front. And this was so cool because they called us. We didn't say like, hey guys, please help us out. They were like, hey, we're doing this tour. We're doing this album, this incredible album by R.E.M. Y'all want some money? <laughs> yeah. So thanks to everybody who bought posters, they were able to raise $18,000 for Abortion Access Front from these tour posters. And all we had to do was some people who were somewhere near when they were performing got to show up and give a plea to the crowd. And so Alyssa, like they said, did DC and Philadelphia. Oh my God, how much fun did you have? I had absolutely the most fun. I went with a friend who loves R.E.M. So she was just like crying and she said it was the best night of her life. The music was like incredible. I was absolutely transported. And the audience was so great. They were so enthusiastic yes. about abortion access also. Like they saw my t-shirt before they even knew what was happening. And they were like, I love this. What's going on? Tell me about abortion access, Ron. It was great. Oh my God. What shirt were you wearing? I was wearing our Mary Tyler Moore abortion AF shirt. Mm, I was wearing our literally no one asked you shirt, which has a uterus in the front. And similarly, people were like, what a cool shirt before I even got on stage in New York. I was at the Williamsburg Music Hall. It's a classic. Also, like what was really funny is like, we you know, we got to I'm sure you did as well. We got to go backstage for a minute and like uh -huh. the band was like doing its band stuff. But then when the show started, these people who like backstage had been like, yo, it's up, like transported to like literal rock stars. It was yeah. incredible to watch. <laughs> it really was. It was so much fun. So thank you so much to the whole band, Michael Shannon, Jason Narduji, for doing activism and not make us do pr pretty much any work except for going to a cool concert. That was great. I'm not sure how yours went, but when I came up, I like interrupted the show. Basically, Jason Arducci like stopped the show like halfway through the album mm -hmm. and was like, hey, we're, we're like, we put together this cool band. We're doing this show and we are donating the proceeds for the only, I want to say also, this was their only merch. Like this poster was their only merch. Right. And we're donating the proceeds to Abortion Access Front. And so, hey, Moji, come out and talk about your org. I've never interrupted a rock show before in my life. <laughs> you deserve to interrupt every rock show on the planet. I know that in my heart, but I don't know enough <laughs> rock stars for anyone else to help me make that a reality. And so I was super nervous, but it was super fun. And like you said, the crowd was so enthusiastic. Like yeah. I made my little, my little chitty chat. And then when I came off, like people were high-fiving me Yes, while the band had already started. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, rock stars, this is your chance. You know, do a yeah. thing and send us money. <laughs> and if you want us to show up when you're in our towns, we will. Absolutely. <laughs> also, there are a few posters that were signed by all of the members of the band, and they are available for purchase right now, but they're limited. They're already signed. There's no extras. Once they're gone, they're gone. The link to purchase them will be in the show notes. So if or you went to the concert or you didn't get to get a signed poster because it wasn't available, or if you didn't go and you just like having posters of cool shit, 
follow the link to the show notes and buy one. Hell yeah. Alyssa, ready to drop a news deuce? Mochi, that was disgusting. And I loved it. (laughs) Why don't you start us off? Absolutely. West Virginia is now requiring public schools to show a video about fetal development that was produced by an extremist anti-abortion organization starring a creepy computer-generated fetus named Baby Olivia. Now, we've seen it, and this video makes it seem like a six-week fetus is so developed it could basically walk out of the uterus, and by 12 (laughs) weeks, it could salute the flag, and by 20 weeks, it's passionate that no movie should ever reboot with all female leads. It would hate the Marvels. I promise for this next story, Ashton Kutcher is not going to come out and say you were punked because it's good news. The University of Maryland is getting a massive $10.6 million grant to expand abortion training for med students. Hooray. Um, didn't fake clinics get over a billion dollars since Roe was overturned? Moji, can you let me have this one thing, please? I know an anti-abortion box, this is pennies, but I, I need this win. Okay. Sure. Fine. Thank you. Finally, State Rep. Candace Newell of Louisiana has generously proposed a bill that says miscarriage management and ectopic pregnancy care is not considered abortion. And doctors who perform these life-saving procedures should not have to go to jail for 10 years. So nice, right? So nice. I feel like anti-abortion people just like love to make up new terms. And the one that I've been seeing that tries to divorce abortion from healthcare is pre-viability separation which is exactly how I feel like Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin would have announced their abortion if they'd had one. (laughs) I wonder what that candle would smell like. (laughs) Okay, I don't know, but I know it would cost at least $75. (laughs) Let's get out of the goop and give you the scoop on the stories we want to break down further. Moji, I believe you've got our first story of the night. This week, Alabama Supreme Court shocked everyone who's not been paying attention to Alabama by declaring that cryogenically frozen extrauterine embryos are in fact children and causing them any harm is akin to murder. While most people who've seen children in the wild are having trouble making this make sense, the effect and functions of Alabama law has backed this kind of fundamentalist reasoning for quite some time. 72-year-old judge Tom Parker, who's been on the Alabama Supreme Court since 2005, has proudly stated that his Christian faith guides his rulings. And you see that in all of the things he said about this current ruling, right? He said, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God who views the destruction of his image as an affront to himself. Moji, I know I didn't grow up in this country, but I feel like there is uh, this thing called the separation of church and state. Is that what did I hear wrong about that? Tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it seems like a distant memory. (laughs) Church versus state was a thing. But yeah, this guy is basically saying, I think God made the government. I mean, let's be honest. This guy is kind of saying God made these extra uterine embryos and therefore they matter. I don't know. It's wild. Alabama Supreme Court, which Tom Parker sat on at the time and has sat on since then, actually in 2013, redefined child to include unborn child. And then they used that redefinition to punish pregnant women who used controlled substances. And this has led to an explosion in Alabama of prosecuting and jailing pregnant and suspected people for substance use, for suspected substance use, for eating soft cheeses and sushi. Okay. Okay. Those two might not be true, but I mean, who knows? It's Alabama. You know what I mean? Moji, you know, I think we should say it, uh, even though I know it's true. We're not saying go ahead and do all the drugs you want while you're pregnant if your doctor tells you not to. But also, like, maybe we shouldn't jail people who need to be raising children, like having a mom who's in prison. I think that's child harm. Or jailing pregnant people. Pregnant people in in prison do not get the prenatal care that pregnant people need. And this is, again, another thing that is happening in Alabama, that people are pregnant and not getting prenatal vitamins, whatever care they need, and giving birth in prison. These are not things that protect children, right? These are not. Right. A lot of his rulings and a lot of what he says publicly, both as a judge, but also even in private places or non, non-judge non places is because he's a proponent of this seven mountain mandate. And you know about this as well, right? This this increasingly powerful movement that even Speaker of the House Mike Johnson is a proponent of. So, you know, it's creepy. If he's, if he's part of it, 
you know it's immediately first of all seven mountains what what are the seven mountains oh great question Ellis. um the seven mountains include government education media religion family business and entertainment so basically everything and their idea is that all of these things should be controlled and led by christian fundamentalist values regardless of if you're christian or fundamentalist which let's be honest most of us are not uh, no, and this country is not once again church and state. <laughs> we have like a you know, you keep of religion going back things. to that, like that's something new and fun, right? You like, know, it just, just seems like this finicky little wrinkle in this plan of theirs <laughs> that I just can't seem to get over. And so, also, when you like really look to the IVF ruling, like one of the things about IVF is you know, a lot of these fundamentalists here, they're like, oh, the kids, oh, the kids, oh, the child, oh, whatever. But the IVF process actually has a lot of things that Catholic teachings and increasingly evangelical teachings glom onto that are like, these are terrible. And one of them is like masturbation as an offense against chastity, which is one of the ways you collect the sperm. Uh, The only way you collect the sperm. (laughs) What will the sperm harvesters do, Moji? What will they do? Do you know someone? I don't know. But not masturbate is is one of the things that fundamentalists would like. Also, and this I didn't know, um, Catholics believe that fertilization of an egg and sperm outside of a woman's body or outside of a uterus is also just immoral, that it has to happen in the context of a sacred conjugal act between a husband and a wife. So they're demanding P and V. Sometimes, and this is the most overtly obvious in the IVF process, you get too many embryos, right? Few of Mm -hmm. us actually want 10 children. And sometimes in the IVF process, you create 10 children. So you You have to make like 10 to 20 just to get one, right? Exactly. Or even you get, you might even need three, right? But you use Mm -hmm. one, you use two. Few people want more than those one or two. And storing um, an embryo costs like 400 to like several thousand dollars a year. Wow. So let's, with this ruling, I'm almost like, how long are you going to have to pay for that? You know, like, is that then you you start your family and then for 65 years, you have to pay that annual fee? Like when is natural death for a cryogenically frozen embryo? And you know what I hadn't considered? Is it like a, a U-Haul storage unit where they do storage wars afterwards if you for your unclaimed fetuses? I don't know. And also, and we're really getting in the weeds with like things, questions that we can't even answer here. But like, if you stop paying that uh, as a consumer, what is the facility supposed to do, right? Like right. take you to court for what? Yeah. Uh, what is the embryo retirement village going to look like? <laughs> Who knows? Um, And so, of course, one of the effects of this ruling is that IVF centers had stopped care in the Alabama region just because they were unclear of these questions that we're bringing up jokingly or actual practical uh, concerns for their business model Mm -hmm. uh, that they and so they just stopped. So all of these people who were trying to use IVF to grow their families are just basically stuck in limbo. Some people started transporting their embryos to other states. At least one of the three companies that operate in Alabama that did embryo transfer stopped because imagine you have a bunch of embryos and you're transferring and you get into a car accident. How much wrongful death is that? I hadn't even thought about that. Spitballing questions that we shouldn't even have to ask. I want to also just bring another button to it that like Alabama basically realized that this was PR-wise, just a terrible idea, and everyone has had an outcry about it for the last week or so that it's been in place. And so just Thursday, they're actually, the legislatures, both the Senate and the, the House in Alabama got together and created a new bill that shielded doctors from this, right? They just rushed a bill through to say doctors are safe from prosecution, And I'm still unclear then why we even have this bill on the record, right? Because I've carried an embryo, but I've never like touched one with my fingers. So who else but doctors is interacting with frozen embryos? The thing that I'm wondering was like, was the embryo that was dropped, was it in like the the beverage fridge with the Fiji water? I just want to understand how someone who was not a doctor got their hands on this test tube. So many questions. So many questions. As the legislators came together and tried to create this bill, and again, it also expires in 2025, so I also don't understand what this protection for doctors will do in terms of long-term answer for the citizens of Alabama, but Sean Tipton, the chief advocacy and policy officer at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, essentially just looked at this bill that they rushed together and said it still fails to correct the Supreme Court's nonsensical stance that fertilized eggs are scientifically and legally children because they're not. 
anyone who's seen a child knows better. And so why, Alyssa? Why are they doing this? Because they don't want us to have anything that could ever possibly bring us joy. <laughs> uh, don't ask Tommy Tuberville, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, we know why they're doing this. Because the modern conservative movement, this is how they work, right? They create these nonsensical bills or they create these unconstitutional constitutional crises. And then they hope that this is the case that can weave its way up to the Supreme Court of the land and create a federal statute that affects all of us, even people that don't have cuckoo bananas um, judges in their state. Yeah, just by putting this on the books, like that was their goal, just getting this out there, setting the precedent that, hey, we can do this nutty shit. This whatever band-aid they put on it expires in 2025. So I still am like, we haven't solved a thing. Anyway, I could talk about this for hours. Let's move on. So we always celebrate when pro-abortion ballot initiative passed. But um, you think maybe we should put down the ice cream for a second? Talk to us about it, Alyssa. So, yeah, when the Dobbs decision came down, the goal of conservative anti-abortion lawmakers from the jump was to give the right to decide if people have the right to abortion to the states, thinking their smear campaigns against the life-saving procedure that is abortion had worked and that people wouldn't vote for it. But well, what we saw after that was a slew of abortion ballot initiatives in states like Kansas and Ohio, where abortion was put to the vote and the people overwhelmingly voted to protect abortion. And this had abortion foes shaking in their sneakily platformed boots and abortion friends excited by the prospect of the ballot initiative as a magic wand that would save abortion across the U.S. Yeah, but, you know, we had a guest here just a few weeks ago, Pamela Merritt from Med Students for Choice, and we got a little bit schooled to maybe not be so optimistic about this golden ticket to abortion nirvana that we've all been uh, basically hanging our hat on. Yeah. Because basically ever since this potential path forward for abortion activists has been revealed, the anti-abortion loin legislators and fetal personhood affiliates, well, they're <laughs> always going to keep doing everything in their power to make sure that they're the ones in control of our front bottoms. And of course, we've got receipts from two states trying to grab their constituents' bodily autonomy by the ballot measure. Yep. Like soon after the Dobbs decision, Kansas was the first state to vote on abortion rights. And Kansas is a red state. So everyone was like, oh, well, we got this in the bag. Mm -hmm. And then 59% of Kansas voted to protect the right to abortion in their constitution. Um, but it seems that that was not enough for the legislators in Kansas to have to listen to them, despite of them saying so clearly that they wanted to have abortion rights. Just last month, Kansas proposed one of the most abhorrent anti-abortion legislations imaginable to undermine them. Yeah. So th there were three in particular that I saw this month. The first two use the classic tactic of targeting abortion providers. So the group Kansas for Life, backed by our friends, the evil lawyers from the Alliance Defending Freedom, the people who undid Roe and are working on undoing Mifepristone right now. Oh, yeah. Remember them? They're proposing a bill that would require providers to ask patients why they are terminating their pregnancies that they legally had in the state of Kansas. I don't want to be pregnant. Is that an answer? Is that an option? Well, <laughs> that is something I can say. <laughs> <laughs> That's not all, Moji. Not only are they asking them why they're getting their abortions, they're having them rank in order of importance the list of reasons why they are having an abortion. <laughs> I don't want to be pregnant and I don't want to be pregnant and it's none of your fucking business. Are those options? Those are those are personally my top three. But... Is that a write-in option? Because I would write those in. <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. Also, anti-abortion lawmakers in the House and Senate said, well, OK, you can have your legal abortions, but we're going to introduce a bill requiring prison time for coercing, big air quotes here, a pregnant person into an abortion. Because abortion doesn't sell itself. Right. right. Yeah. If the doctor <laughs> says you're going to die, you need an abortion, that apparently is slimy per way to persuade someone into getting an abortion. That's not even the last one. Even if you've enshrined abortion access in your state, these guys are going to do literally anything to make sure that you can't get one. This other bill that was suggested would redefine fetuses as Kansas children. Oh my God. Did we just talk about that? We did just talk <laughs> about that. I feel like Kansas should probably have a conversation with Alabama before they push that one through. 
It's a mess. This is wild. Also, anti-abortion lawmakers in Mississippi are like creating brand new horror. And I would love for you to like build on that because we keep forgetting that Mississippi doesn't have ballot initiatives. Mm -hmm. And so this magic bullet hasn't been available to them, but well, they've found a way to make that crazy too. Yeah. So that was Kansas. But in Mississippi, anti-abortion lawmakers are introducing an entirely brand new horror, which is weaponizing ballot initiatives against their own voters. I know this one. I know this one. This is great. Tell us about it. All right. In 2021, the Mississippi Supreme Court decided that the ballot initiative process they had wasn't fair. And it wasn't fair because their constitution said that they had five districts. However, because of redistricting, because of their population, it had actually shrunk to four districts. And their constitution said they needed five to do a ballot initiative. And so therefore they decided we're just going to throw out ballot initiatives altogether. Yeah. Um, like, the match doesn't work. Oh, well, too bad. Can't fix it. Which is a solvable problem, right? They could have just changed their constitution pretty simply. Legislators could have done that. Uh, and they decided not to because it's really nice to just keep people from having direct democracy. I feel like that is preferred. So the new development last month, anti-abortion lawmakers in Mississippi were like, hey, listen. We've got a deal for you guys. We're going to bring back this whole ballot initiative thing by fixing that little numbers problem that we have on one condition. You can never, ever, ever pass any ballot initiatives to change the state's abortion laws. That's the only ballot initiative you can't do. <laughs> we saw what was going on elsewhere. We don't want it happening here. This is wild, right? Also, I want to remind everyone that, and they reminded us in this quote that I'm going to read, that Mississippi walked us into the Dobbs decision that took the right for abortion out of a constitutional right for the rest of us. And uh, Republican Representative Fred Shank said this. I'm going to say it in my best Mississippi accent, which I don't even know what it sounds like. The abortion issue has been an issue that the majority of the House has championed for the past decade. The House was the force that overturned Roe v. Wade. It was no one else. It was us. And I just don't think we want to be messing with it. How'd, how'd that sound? I thought that was pretty that good. That sounded great. Also, <laughs> I, I just don't think we want to be messing with it. That's how white supremacy stays afloat, you guys. That is how it keeps going. They're like, let's just not. <laughs> Basically, let's like, just the not status quo anything. is great. Yeah, we love great. it. It's working for everyone. Look at me. I'm doing great. Yeah, you guys are suffering. That's the way I like it. So obviously op opponents to this weird change to a ballot initiative, which is supposed to be direct democracy and a way for the voters to set their will for the world that they want to live in. Mm -hmm. Opponents are saying this is robbing people of their right to speak up, right? Yeah. And so all of this to say, keep supporting your local abortion ballot initiative, but do not stop once the work on that front is done. There are so many other sneaky ways that these people are trying to undermine democracy, undermine your right to your bodily autonomy. And you got to be on the lookout for that. As always, these stories will be in the show notes and you can find the best, most up-to-the-minute resources on accessing abortion care and funding your care on our website, aafront.org. Our Charlie chatbot on the bottom right will walk anyone anywhere in the country through their options and resources for abortion. Dukes, this has been a great chat. Let's get to our guests. Yes, let's do it. Dr. Rebecca Gompertz is a Dutch physician known for founding Women on Waves and Aid Access, organizations that provide reproductive health services in countries where they're not readily available. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today because you're at the forefront of abortion activism. And we just had to ask, how did you get started? Oh, you have to take me back a very long time. I've been doing this work for now 25 years. I started uh, in the Netherlands. I was uh, uh, I was actually born in Suriname, but I did. We moved to the Netherlands, and I did my medical training here. And there's an abortion clinic around my corner, so uh, it was a coincidence that I actually started working there, and I had already been confronted with the lack of access to safe and legal abortions uh, when I was doing my internship in uh, in Africa, in Guinea. Then I worked for Greenpeace on the boats and all everything came together. The, uh, you know, the knowledge about the injustice that's done to women when there is no safe or legal abortions, the way how you can change things, the 
the excitement of being able to work around laws. And so the first organization that I founded is Women on Waves, uh, which is still my incubator. The board members have been there for almost uh, as long as the organization has been there, and they're my partners in this travel. And it started with uh, the idea that you can have a ship that goes to countries where abortion is illegal, that you can take women on board, sail out to international waters, where it's the laws of the land, where the ship is registered that apply. Mm -hmm. And there you can give women safe abortion and legal abortions. And um, the the first campaign was funded by a group of 10 feminists, women uh, from the Netherlands. And yeah, I mean, that was a huge adventure and really hard to pull off. But uh, yeah, that started my work in abortion rights. Such incredible work. And even looking at the pictures of Women on Waves um, and your beautiful logo is incredible. And you founded that in 1999. And then you went on to start Aid Access in 2018, um, which also expanded ways for people to access abortion. How has your work changed since then? I mean, I know in the U.S. alone, we had the Dobbs decision in 2022, but your organization is international. Yeah, so I mean, I've worked all over the world since we started Women on Waves. One uh, with the boat, we did uh, eight campaigns uh, in Poland, in Portugal, in Ireland, um, in Morocco, uh, Mexico, Guatemala, and so that was part of the work that we did. And we, you know, worked together with local women's organizations, training them in how to give an, an abortion with pills. So we actually really early already started working with local women's groups and training them in medication abortion. And I think that before that time, the kind of the the difference between the medical professionals that were able to do these treatments and the women women's groups, it was very far apart. Uh, and actually, there were some women's groups, especially in Latin America, that were against uh, medication abortion because they mm -hmm. felt that it left the doctors off the hook because they didn't mm -hmm. need to do the procedures anymore. And that all changed a lot. So what we now see is telemedical abortions I've done since 2005, so also almost 20 years. Before I started uh, Aid Access, I started another organization called Women Web. So I mean, we've helped, you know, hundreds and thousands of women now uh, in the past 20 years. And I think what really changed is, I mean, I was really at the beginning of the abortion pill becoming available. So the first campaign we did, it was the abortion pill was just registered in the Netherlands. It had been available already in France and in Sweden, but it wasn't used widely. And so the incredible uh, revolution of the abortion pills is something that I participated in and lived in and training women's organizations, setting up hotlines everywhere in the world, you know, Indonesia, Pakistan, Africa. And now what you see is at that time, the abortion pills were not yet widely spread. Now they're everywhere. There's It's registered in many places. If it's not registered, it's available under, you know, informal circuits. So, I mean, that is really dramatically changed the reality for women because uh, before, if people needed an abortion, they were relying on a professional that knew their anatomy that could do an invasive procedure, a vacuum aspiration for which you had to work like with a sterile and hygienic. And now with the pills, it's like a miscarriage. It's extremely safe. Women can do it themselves. They don't have to have a lot of money to be able to afford a doctor. It really took away the power from the institutions and, uh, put it back in the hands of the people that become pregnant. So that is a major change. And, and you can see it back in the numbers of, in the mortality, so the number of women dying because of unsafe abortion. Uh, when I started into 25 years ago, you know, the numbers were like 100,000, 200,000 women per year that were dying from unsafe abortions. And the most recent estimates are 25,000. And at the same time, the abortion rates, of course, went up because there are more people, so there are more abortions. So... It really, really made a huge difference for people that can come, become pregnant. I love that. But I also want to say 25,000 is 25,000 too many. I, no, it's too much. Let, yeah. Let's be clear. Huh? And, and I think there's another thing. I mean, even if the pills are available, why it has to be legal is because it really matters how people experience their situation. Making abortion illegal creates a huge taboo. It creates shame, self-censorship. It creates an obstacle to 
find care. I mean, it's really much more difficult to find abortion care when it's illegal because, you know, you can talk about it with anybody. It creates tremendous fear. And and these are the things that we have seen happening in the United States. When ADEX started, abortion was still uh, legal everywhere. And now, for example, what was interesting is that we were helping a lot of people because there were other obstacles. So the obstacles to abortion care at that time was money. People mm-hmm. couldn't afford the rates of the clinics. So $100 was what they could afford and even not $100 sometimes. So it was some, we always gave away the abortions that people, if people couldn't afford it or distances to travel to clinics. If you have childcare or you can take time off of work or also privacy, people that were living in the houses of friends or people in a domestic violence situation or, you know, many, many reasons, but also preference. Some people just said, I want to do this by myself. I don't want to have to go to a doctor and be confronted uh, or in a clinic where, you know, they're going to ask me, why do you want it? Are you sure? Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. And it's, I want to do this on my own terms. So there were these two types of people. But now we see really people are much more scared. And at that time, also people felt like this was something they were entitled to because it was a constitutional right and people knew it. And they were actually pretty pissed off that they couldn't afford it, that they couldn't have access. They were all willing to speak with the press if there was a request. And now people are really scared. The the fear is, you can feel it everywhere. And you can see it back in the evaluations that people are you know, really scared to, uh, you know, to be prosecuted, to be, that they're breaking the law, that they're illegal. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about it with anybody. You know, it's it's a very different environment. It is. And one of the things that will probably directly affect your work that we see on the horizon is this Supreme Court case about mifepristone. Yeah. How do you think restricting mifepristone in the U.S. will affect your work? It won't, because we already had a discussion with our (laughs) providers in the U.S., and we're not going to stop. Right. (laughs) The thing is, if even if they restrict it, so what they can do in the Supreme Court is say, bring it, send it back to the FDA, right? And then uh, and say, okay, well, the decision to make it available through telemedicine uh, was not well documented or or whatever or after seven weeks. So then the FDA will bring it back. But still, if it's available. It means that doctors can prescribe off-label. And actually, ADEXs and the doctors that I work with in the United States, they were already doing telemedicine before the FDA approved it. So we already did it before there was an official approval, let's say. Uh, I think that if Trump wins the elections again, then there's a totally different situation because that means then that the head of the FDA will be appointed by him. And then there is a FDA that is not supportive of abortion rights anymore. And then there is a huge risk that they will totally take it off the market and they won't defend Mifepristone to be there. Now, what is interesting is the court case. There's many, Mifepristone is available in two brands in the US. One is it's for abortion, but it's also registered for the treatment of a disease that's called Cushing's syndrome uh, and it's called Corlin. And this is 300 micrograms, so 100 micrograms more than and it doesn't matter. It's still, it would really work well for abortions. The problem is that tablet is $600 per tablet. Oh, oh wow. I mean, mifepristone won't disappear because they will not ban mifepristone for this other indication. They will only ban it for abortions. But then, you know, it just becomes extremely difficult to afford for people. One of the things that we are really excited about that's been coming that we saw in the last month is that you are moving forward with trials or raising money for trials of using mifepristone as birth control. And this is extremely exciting to me. Can you just talk about this new direction of using MIFI as a non-hormonal birth control? So actually the the trial already started. It's happening now in Moldova. We have 70 participants so far. It's interesting because mifepristone became available in 89. And the moment that they were developing it, it was already recognized that it would be, that it could be a contraceptive. And so in the 2000, around 2000, 2004, there have been trials have been done. There was a trial in China and in the UK looking at low doses of daily doses of mifepristone. And um, I did my PhD uh, with uh, in, in Sweden, in Karolinska Institute with uh, Professor Kristina Kemsel. 
And she was at the, she was actually one of the first researchers on mifepristone. So she worked on mifepristone for different indications. And so when after my PhD, we kept in touch and the PhD was about telemedical abortions. And I said, okay, so let's, you know, what can we do together? And then she said, well, you know, I've been working on this. And so I said, okay, let's, let's look into it. So then um, I had an intern researching and we found this one study that was done in China where uh, a researcher looked at mifepristone for contraceptive. What is interesting about weekly use is that it makes on-demand use possible because the doses that is used for weekly use is the same doses that it also works as an emergency contraceptive. So it's similar as L1. Um, and then what you get is a situation that when you have a lot of sex, you can use it every week. And it works. And if you just have sex once a week, you know, once a month, you can just use it when you have sex. So oh, it wow. becomes really this hmm. very flexible form of uh, contraceptive. There hasn't been a new, a really new contraceptive research, you know, since 50 years after the, the pill. I mean, there are some barrier methods and there's some things that came up, but all the, the main contraceptives, they're all either a combination of estrogen and progesterone. Um, you know, or progesterone alone. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and the side effects of the, and especially the estrogen, is the higher risk of thrombosis. There is a, a higher risk of breast cancer. There's a, there's a risk of depression, loss of libido. So it comes with side effects. And, and it has been downplayed a lot because, I mean, there is no alternative, right? Mm -hmm. Right. It's downplayed because we don't talk about it. Exactly. Yeah. And progesterone is also good, um, uh, you know, it, but it's a daily pill. People don't want to swallow pills every day. And also it's less effective than uh, the combined. So the studies have been there. There's There's been, I think, five or six studies that have looked at mifepristone as a contraceptive. One is daily use, one was weekly use, and one is an Indian study where they used looked at 200 micrograms every month. And that works as well. They combined it with combined oral contraceptive. And they found that the acceptability of the mifepristone is so much higher. It was 85% compared to less than 50%. When you say acceptability, what do you mean by like people using it, but by patients? That it was more acceptable and that there were no side effects. The side effects for the combined oral contraceptives was much higher than the side effects. There were very few side effects experienced. Uh, with mifepristone and the only thing that we know that is what will happen is that there will be less menstruation and the menstruation can stop totally when you use the mifepristone. Those are the only side effects? Yeah, that's the only. Mm -hmm. I've been holding back saying like, maybe there's just a few, but you're saying... No, that's the only. Less menstruation? <laughs> yes, less menstruation. And there's one thing that we don't know yet. It wasn't reported in the Indian study, but it is being reported in other studies where mifepristone is being used for the treatment of myoma. Because it works against myoma, it works against endometriosis. I know you know you know all that, uh, what it is or not. Okay, do you want me to explain it? Why don't you explain it? Please explain it. Myoma is that it's like there's the muscle in the in the uterus is thickened. It's like balls there, and what it can give, it gives it can give a lot of bleeding during menstruation, but also pain, and it can really give a lot of complaints, especially a lot of bleeding during menstruation because the the surface of the uterus is enlarged, and then endometriosis is where the lining of the uterus is not in the uterus anymore, but outside the uterus. So on the ovaries or even on the intestines and it gives, but it starts bleeding when you have menstruation. So it causes a lot of scar tissue in your, in your belly and mm -hmm. it can give a lot of pain complaints uh, for women. And so mifepristone actually works very well against the treatment. There's also research in that and against myoma. Because it's an anti-progesterone, so it, it blocks the hormone progesterone. It's an anti-hormone. And so I think these are really important benefits. And there's another, there's also studies that are looking at mifepristone that is blocking the, the advancement of metastasis from breast cancer. So it also works against metastasis for cancer. And it's it's being researched for other cancers as well. So it, it has a lot of beneficial effects. So what you're saying is this is a miracle pill that is being restricted. That's what it sounds like to me. Yes. 
Well, I mean, yes, it, I, this medicine has been researched for over 40 years in abortions, you know, millions. I, I just calculated probably 200 million women have used it or even more, probably even probably more. more. I mean, at least 200 million. And like maybe documented, but we know that mm-hmm. people are self-managing all around the world. It, and it has been researched for so many other indications as well. Um, so the problem is it's not under patent anymore which means that none of the pharmaceutical companies has any interest in developing it or in investing in clinical trials because a trial like we are now doing is costing millions. And we are cheap because we are not very <laughs> high, highly paid uh, you know, pharmaceutical uh, people. But and, and universities, uh, if you do it through university, it's in general much more cheaper than when you do it you know, outside uh, by a pharmaceutical company. But they won't do it. So we were able to raise the money to do this trial. There's a couple of people that are funding it. And so we are, yeah, I mean, it's very exciting. I, I, it's really very exciting. It's super exciting. But it's also very daunting. It's a, it's very difficult because you have to be very, very careful what you do, how you do it, so that you, we can actually register it for that, for the use as an uh, as an uh, contraceptive after the trial. I'm amazed. And listen, I know it's daunting, but if it's going to be in anybody's hands, I feel very safe knowing that. It's <laughs> yeah, you know, I think. Well, I think it's true. I don't know. I mean, that's what we always said. Like. Women on waves with my and and I'm I'm doing it with my. Uh, there's especially one person that that I always work with. It's she, her name is Gunilla Cleverda. She's uh, the gynecologist uh, that has been working also with me for 25 years. And Christina Gemsel, the professor, is also part of this a lot. And she is a very well well known researcher in contraceptives and very well respected. So there's a really good team. And then there's a team in Leiden Medical University who are really badass women. They're really really so good and uh you know knowing you know what to have to do how what steps to take uh, to bring it further so uh yeah i'm sure we're going to uh it's going to work doctor thank you so much for giving us this information coming on the podcast letting people know all of the opportunities that mifepristone can bring and about your amazing work Thank you. No, it's a pleasure. We're so honored to have you join us. Thank you so much. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure. It's so nice. And I hope that we will be able to in time. There's also an American organization that that is uh, supporting us in this work. And uh, and we hope that they will be able to bring it uh, also to the markets in the U.S. uh, after the results of the study are, are done. Uh, But again, everything depends on who's going to be the head of the FDA. Right. So please go and vote and make sure you vote for the right person who's supporting abortion rights. Well, we will definitely have to have you back on to talk about that organization next (laughs) time you come back. Yeah. Dr. Rebecca Gompert, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for your interview. There's a link to the Mifepristone study she referenced in the show notes and get your abortion pills for future use through Aid Access, also linked in our show notes. And now it's time for our new favorite party game, Abortion or Distortion, the game where you, Moji, this week are going to name three things, and I have to guess under which of two categories it falls under. All right. So this week I'm asking you to guess if these are real headlines or onion headlines. Oh my God, this is going to be so fun. Okay, (laughs) I read the news every morning. So the challenge... Gonna it's really going to be unfair for me. And also, I tried to keep them to contemporary headlines uh-huh. because it's unfair to ask you to look at 96 and be like, what were they doing in the moon? So <laughs> um, we're going to start. All right. The first one, real headline or onion headline? <clears throat> the most terrifying ways the deep state is trying to destroy Donald Trump. Oh, my gosh. This is really hard. Um so this could go, you know, it, it, this really, you had me in the first half. I was like, for sure, onion headline. And then you just, you invoke that one name and I'm just not sure if it's going to be real or not. I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's real. You're going to be wrong. Oh. <laughs> 100% in <an> onion headline. <laughs> You're going to be wrong. But I, I like that. I, I think it was just my dramatic uh, reading. Maybe who knows? Or maybe I was just outed as a conspiracy theorist <laughs> secretly. Okay. All, all right. right. One for Moji. Here we go for option two. I'm going to get it this time. Real headline or onion headline? 
what Christian traditions say about IVF treatments. Ooh, wow. Okay. Having spent all day thinking about this, I'm going to say real headline. Absolutely. It's a New York Times headline. For New this York week. Times. <laughs> one for you, one for me, and the tiebreaker. I'm sorry. I don't think we're spending enough time on how New York Times was the reveal <laughs> of that particular headline. <laughs> sounds like something that is not new york times doesn't it it sounds like i thought it was just something like else catholicism today yeah oh, yeah no. it does no okay. it's the new york times okay. this week well um okay. yeah <laughs> we're doing great guys we are killing it um but good for you for noting nonetheless that it was real and here we go last real headline or onion headline of this week the no surprises act comes with some surprises this does sound like something they would do, but I think, you know, in my professional comedic opinion, this sounds like someone wrote it. I'm going to say it is an onion headline. You would be wrong again. No. That is the Washington Post. Oh, no. The Washington Post. I'm sitting here in stunned silence. From this month, I want to say. From this month. My flabbers are gasted. I just thought. Having the word surprises twice in one headline was wild. <laughs> I teach people how to write jokes for money, and I could <laughs> not have told you that that was real. Oh, my gosh. It was hilarious. Ooh. I think we did great. Oh, my gosh. I was it was going to be too easy for you, news junkie who does news junkieing for work. But uh... Uh, I, I have to reconsider everything in my entire <laughs> life now that I have lost this game. I also think that one was a little tricky because I don't even know what the, new, the No Surprises Act is. <laughs> like, I've never heard of this act. <laughs> I like, guess. What a terrible act name. That's what I'm going to be spiraling at three in the morning researching. Congrats, Moji, on your win. <laughs> uh, moving on, we could not do this podcast without the help of our fake sponsors. And this week, we're throwing it back to an actor and good friend of Abortion Access Front, Brian Unger, joined us at our live show in Atlanta last year as our fake sponsor of the week. Take a listen. Are you being wrongfully terminated? Threatened with uterine eviction? Don't panic. I can help. You've got squatter's rights. That's right. Hi, I'm It's Always Sunny and Philadelphia lawyer Brian Unger, attorney for the unborn. I'm here to take on big abortion and defend your right in that uterus until you decide to relocate on your terms. If dirty freegans can take over a building for years and claim ownership, why can't you take over someone else's body for nine months? As it says in my Bill of Rights, life begins at the moment the weenie pulls into that garage. <laughs> and that garage is yours to call home until you find your way out to live rent-free for at least 18 more years. <laughs> I pride myself in speaking for those who cannot speak for themselves because you don't have little lips and literally can't form words. <laughs> Email me now at Brian Unger and Sons, the ones who weren't aborted. <laughs> For a free consultation using the promo code BROLIFE and get a pair of my patented fetal kitten mittens absolutely free. Don't wait. Let me help you because every fetus ends with us. <laughs> oh, my gosh. After that conversation we had about IVF earlier, Moji, that just felt like Tom Parker if he had a phone sex voice. Oh, 1,000%. <laughs> I also glommed on the parties like because they don't have lips. And I'm like, when are um, extra uterine uh, embryos ever going to have lips? It's not in their Oh, path. my gosh. <laughs> They're tiny little lips. They can't ask for a lawyer. My God. Well, I want to keep laughing, Moji. Let's introduce our next guest. Oh, absolutely. Our next guest is a woman of many talents. You may have seen her acting in the movie Plan B, playing herself on MTV, or cracking you up at comedy clubs around the country. Here's a little something we thought you'd enjoy. At least I know I'm not the only person out here uh, fucking up. One of my uh, guy friends had his fifth kid on accident during the pandemic. How, I know, I was like, five kids, none of them on purpose, dude. There's no excuse for that in 2022. We have the technology. 
It's not like it's the Middle Ages where he's like, I don't understand. I've dipped my penis in honey. How was the maiden with child? <laughs> no. <laughs> I was like, five kids, bro. Scientists are literally out here debating, like, do we have the right to clone? Who are we to create life? And this idiot is just splooging in waitresses. <laughs> Like, I guess I just created a soul. <laughs> I'm like, stop! <laughs> this is why we're overpopulated and now none of us can use straws. Do you understand that shit? Because <laughs> you didn't want to wear a condom, I'm stuck sucking a milkshake out of a bounty paper towel roll. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome Suba Agarwal. Hi, Suba. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, we're so excited to have you. So you started writing jokes when you were 16, which mm -hmm. means you've been professionally funny for like <laughs> a half a lifetime. <laughs> like what kind of growth and change have you seen in yourself and your comedic voice during the whatever many amount of decades of comedy you've done? Well, I think when you first start, you are a parrot of whoever you look up to or know the most. Mm. And I was trying to impress the Indian kids in my high school. That's genuinely <laughs> why I started comedy. So I was parroting Russell Peters, who does a lot of like, oh, Indian people do this, blah, 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 blah. The problem was I grew up in a very white suburb and I didn't know what Indian people <laughs> So like, I like I, I would go up in a pressure cafe, which is right near the Vaughn Avenue, like this really Indian part of Chicago. And these Indians would come in and they would just stare at me. <laughs> like, this like do you know any Indian people? <laughs> it was so embarrassing. But it like shook me out of it pretty quickly because I was like, oh, they know I'm full of it. So <laughs> and then it was like uh, it's quickly became what do I want to say? What's my voice? Which is the first time I had ever asked myself that. I think uh, a lot of teenagers that's around the age that starts happening and then it's very addictive and fulfilling as much as uh, stand up comedy is a humiliating <laughs> art form. It was just a, a very cool process to go through. That's so true. And I, I was going to ask, you know, also being from a global South immigrant cultural background, like fitting in is kind of like your job mm. <laughs> for a long yeah. time. And so it's interesting that you were like, well, let me do stand up to fit in. <laughs> I, it was the worst. That was that was what I did to be popular. That's so embarrassing. Like cheerleader. <laughs> like, have I not seen any movies? <laughs> That whole genre is about how to become popular and cheerleading and also taking off your glasses seems to be yes. particularly effective. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where were you? I needed you. <laughs> Let's roll it back. <laughs> well, it seems you quickly learned your lesson, right? You were quoted yeah. uh, once saying, doing stand-up comedy doesn't make you friends. And listen, we get that. <laughs> we are people who host an abortion podcast, right? Also, <laughs> not the like steps you take to be super popular, but you still decided to double down on that and do a comedy special about mental health. So like, mm -hmm. what kind of support systems have you had to cultivate to get, I mean, anything done? In terms of just surviving in the industry. Just living in this world, yeah. <laughs> being a person with a uterus, uh, mm -hmm. being brown, yes. eating breakfast, doing stand-up. <laughs> I think uh, therapy is so valuable. Um, like, you know you're not doing well when comedians sit you down and go, you got to fix this. <laughs> you had a comedic intervention? I did. But I was like, I was in college. I was really young and I was just... I just couldn't come to terms with pursuing stand-up comedy and having that be my life and not being able to be the good kid for my family anymore. Like I had to fully commit to who I was going to be. And the closer I got to that point, the crazier I was getting. Like, I think there was one point where I was like, okay, I'm just going to like, I kept trying to avoid it. I was like, I'm going to join the army. And then <laughs> some comic was like, you know, they do group showers. And I, I was out like that. <laughs> That was what did it for me. I was like, how embarrassing. <laughs> That's why I didn't apply for the military, which is, which tells you how insane I was. And then I worked at a county fair in Illinois. I was like, I'll go work for a traveling county fair. That was my plan. I was like, I'll sell onion rings. So like, Suba, go to therapy. Like every week I had a new plan to just get out of society. <laughs> like, 
without realizing what I was doing. I was just panicking. I was like, I can't. And so I got hooked up with a really lovely therapist and uh, it was good. It (laughs) made me not run away to a circus. (laughs) You know what I'm realizing is that I had the same instinct. I literally was going to join the army or run away to the circus and instead I became a stand-up comedian. And I think we should do a census of all of us. (laughs) Make sure it's not an epidemic. We're doing different things in New York. Neither of those things. Well, circus, actually, circus was on the list, absolutely, for a circus while. Circus is always on the list. It looks so cool. You know, there are animals, there's aerialists, like... Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to put up the tents, free popcorn. However, I live in New York, and I feel like everyone's doing circus in my town. It's like, I, you don't even get the traveling bit. That's what happened to those of us who didn't get into stand-up comedy, would you? <laughs> There is a, I don't want to say the word epidemic because it has a negative connotation, but a plethora of clowns (laughs) in the the Los Angeles comedy scene. And I love clowns. My husband was a clown, uh, to be clear. You literally love a clown. (laughs) I literally do. But it's just wild because it was just something that because I I worked as a as a clown, but I was like a party clown. Like I wasn't true to the art form. So I was just making (laughs) painting my face and making terrible balloon animals. And then like you meet actual clowns and you're like, oh, this is awesome. Like you guys are hilarious. Uh, I don't know why children are so scared. (laughs) (laughs) Probably because the clowns for hire are all people who couldn't figure out what else to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's also wild. You like chose the most adult way to join the circus. You were like, I'm just going to marry a clown. I'm just going to do something <laughs> really domestic, but like with a circus performer. <laughs> I still did. Look at that. I didn't even realize that. I still didn't join. <laughs> just in your house. You just right. made a home with a clown. <laughs> oh, that's even worse. It's a clown once all the makeup is off. <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> Oh, the answer to that joke is your husband. (laughs) (laughs) I have two questions. Mm -hmm. First off, are you more of a sit down and write comedian or get up on stage and figure it out comedian? Sit down and write 100%. But I think it's because of how I started because I didn't know you could get on stage at 16. So then I spent a year just writing jokes because I didn't have anywhere to tell them. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 17, some world history teacher was bragging about this all ages open mic he went to. He was trying so hard to look cool to a bunch of teenagers. But that's where I found out I could actually get on stage that young. But because I spent that year just writing, that's how I started. And it took a while for my comedy not to sound written. And I'm kind of like jealous of people who just like go on stage and figure it out. And I do that a little bit, but I don't know. I just prefer writing. It's to me, it's a much quicker way to get to what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. I feel like there. it's just like, oh, I can just cut out the shit as opposed to just keep saying shit until it's not shitty anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, but then also some of my favorite comedians work that way where it's like very kind of just straight from their thoughts, straight trying to communicate to an audience. And it creates something so organic and natural and unique. Yeah. So I don't know. It's I've tried it a couple times and I've been like, Mm-mm. I, I immediately <laughs> back out. I'm right there with you. I need to, I need to sit and write stuff down. <laughs> I mean, it sounds terrifying to me personally. <laughs> so but you have a new special out called Airport Pigeon and it's hilarious. Oh, thank so you. Can you tell us what an airport pigeon is? Like, is it your animal <laughs> mascot? Is it like what you and your husband keep in the house? <laughs> okay, so it's, it's a cute, it is funny because it seems like such an innocuous title, but it's like, um, the special is centered around mental health. And that's kind of like the crux of it, where I talk about being really depressed and like suicidal ideation and all of that stuff. And then I talk about how I was raised Hindu and there's reincarnation. So I can never actually, <laughs> you know what I mean? I can't do anything. Like there's no, it never ends. <laughs> I'm just going to come back. And then the joke around airport pigeon is just like, could you imagine complaining about being a teenager in the suburbs and then you get reincarnated? as an airport pigeon because every time I see one I'm like you poor bird what a terrible nobody wants to be in the airport especially not a pigeon you could be anywhere bird and instead you were in an airport in LaGuardia (laughs) terrible not even a great airport I know just eating Auntie Anne's pretzels terrible terrible I think you found purgatory (laughs) Well, I I, I love this special. And uh, if you're listening, your job is to go watch or listen to it right now immediately. 
one of my favorite questions is there were jokes about pregnancy and abortion and trans rights in your special. So like, what do you think is the comedian's role in speaking up against injustice? In terms of a comedian's role in speaking up against injustice, I mean, I always try. I like when somebody who doesn't share my viewpoint can at least hear a different perspective Mm -hmm. because we are in such strong information bubbles, especially with the way social media and the way we consume news is to have it in a form of entertainment that could potentially reach different audiences is very important and it is a good thing. I don't think it's as important as the actual activists on the ground, though. I feel like they're doing they're like the real hero heroes. It's funny because one of my friends like works for a nonprofit. Um, I forget what country she's in now, but she's like microfinancing like women businesses in like underdeveloped towns. And she's like, you're so brave. I'm like, you're out of your goddamn mind. <laughs> I like, I'm not. So I think comedians do have a role and it is important and it's especially important not to uh, be sending out hateful messages or punching down to marginalized communities. But I definitely think there are more important things and people <laughs> out there. I would argue that our path to liberation, there's like so many paths, right? We all have mm-hmm. to kind of band together and all bits have to come together and do our part to let people know that this kind of shit is unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. it's up for change. 100%. So, but thank you so much for joining us. This was so good. You're so funny. We can't wait to send the links to Airport Pigeon and let people um, just bask in your hilarity. <laughs> thank you for having me. Do you want to tell us your socials or just how other, how people can reach you? So my socials on Instagram, it's Suba, A-S-U-B as in boy, H-A-H-A or Suba. And then on TikTok, it's Suba Comedy. Or if that's hard to remember, if you just go to s-comedy.com, it has my social, my uh, special, everything. Such good SEO. You got s-comedy. Right? I know. I was like, damn. Okay, X. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make sure all these links are in the show notes, too. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Go watch or listen to Suba's comedy special, Airport Pigeon, wherever you get your comedy, and check her out live. Her tour dates are on her official website and will be linked in the show notes. Dukes, that's our show. What a show it was. What a show it was. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Dr. Gompertz. And don't forget to check out Aid Access for all things abortion pill. Also, go sign our petition at aafront.org and ask the FDA to use their power to protect mifepristone. Did we make you smarter? Did we make you laugh today? Then show us some love by liking, subscribing, and giving us a five-star rating. Plus, stay connected with us on social media at Abortion Front across all platforms. Looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? We've got a five-part activist training series, Operation Save Abortion, at OperationSaveAbortion.com. And visit our super cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. This week's featured action is in Michigan. It's the Hydra Fund's self-managed abortion workshop. This in-person workshop will take place in Ann Arbor, Michigan on March 7th from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. It's going to be a great intensive in all things abortion pills, including the current legal landscape and how to support the fight locally and nationally. Sign up using the link in our activist calendar. And join us next week for a very special episode. March 10th is Abortion Provider Appreciation Day, and we're honoring the late Dr. David Gunn. And for our episode, we'll be highlighting our favorite people, abortion providers. We've got Melissa Grant from CareFM giving us some insight about what it's like to deal with clinic invasion and the resilience needed to do this work. Plus, AAF's own programs director and extremist whisperer, Kristen Haiti, will tell us all about what we do here at AAF to celebrate abortion providers all year long. And join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remy Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. And finally, we leave you with Cynthia Yaki, a woman who showed her whole turftastic ass while arguing against a bathroom bill at the Iowa House. My name is Cynthia Yaki. I am a conservative lesbian, certified ghostwriter, and the disability rights activist who started the Emotional Support Animal Movement in 1996. 
I can provide citations for every point I'm going to make. Gender identity must be removed from Iowa's list of protected classes because it has no physical reality and destroys rights based on the physical realities of the protected classes of sex and sexual orientation. Protecting gender identity allows straight men the right to masturbate in women's restrooms and smear semen on the toilet tissue in every stall. It puts straight males in the same bed as your daughter on school field trips and gives straight males the right to parade around nude in the women's locker room and wave their erections in your little girl's face while calling anyone who objects a bigot. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is poppin', we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.